You're listening to the Abra Money 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. Today's podcast takes a deep dive into Stellar, a decentralized payment network and protocol with a native currency called Lumens or XLM. Joining us to discuss the project is Danelle Dixon, CEO and Executive Director of the Stellar Development Foundation. In this episode, Aversville Barheit sits down with Danelle to talk about her new role and learn more about the foundation's mission to unlock the world's economic potential by making money more fluid, markets more open, and people more empowered. But before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Abra nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. And with that out of the way, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, Bill Barhead here. Welcome to another exciting episode of Abra's Money 3.0. With me today in beautiful San Francisco is Danelle Dixon, CEO and Executive Director of the Stellar Foundation. Danelle, welcome to Money 3.0. Thank you so much for having me. Danelle, so uh, I think a lot of people in the Abra audience or our our listenership uh, aren't familiar with yourself and and how you got into uh, this position at Stellar. So just kind of introduce yourself. Where are you from? What's your background? How'd you get into Stellar? Yeah, so uh, Stellar, the SDF, the Stellar Development Foundation, uh, who was founded by Jed McCaleb and others. Uh, Jed reached out to me about a year ago, so it was September of 2018, to talk about the executive director role. It's a funny story that I actually thought he was talking to me about directors on the board, and I didn't realize it was for the executive director role. I see. So we were talking past one another for a bit. Okay. Uh, and I would head, I was the COO of Mozilla. I had been there for seven years. I was running a lot of the different departments there: the revenue lines, the business. Uh, as well as the um, just all the operations groups right. and policy. Now, technically, Mozilla is a nonprofit, but it actually generates a fair amount of revenue, I assume, because of search, right? Yeah, so Mozilla is owned by a nonprofit, which is the Mozilla Foundation. Right, right, right. Mozilla Corporation is the for profit entity that I worked for. I see. And so, while we, we have a single shareholder, so essentially yeah. we operate collectively as a nonprofit. Uh, and we generate we generated a ton of revenue yeah. based on search and other right right right. Um, so, so that means like yeah. Google and others will pay you to basically make their search engine the default or or click, whatever the click through revenue would be. You get a piece of that. That's I right. guess is how that works. That's right. 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 That was the vast majority of revenue among other revenue lines that we were working on. Uh, the the interesting thing for me is I did a lot of the I did the policy work for Mozilla. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time talking about the open web and trying to help to figure out how we could improve the ecosystem holistically. So it was much more, uh, the nice thing that I used to always say when I worked at Mozilla was, and I did the policy piece was, it's so phenomenal to be able to think about something other than just our products and the good for our products, and that we could think about the good for the ecosystem at large. And so that's what we did. A couple of things when Jed came to talk to me that really resonated deeply was that this is a relatively nascent space, just mm-hmm. in terms of if you think about what we the way we call it is the internet for payments, uh, with respect to something like Stellar and blockchain and blockchain generally, and there's a lot that you can actually use that we did wrong on the content side of the web is the way I like to call it that we can actually try to do differently here. What would be an example of something we did wrong? I think that uh, privacy is a really good example of what we did wrong. I was a really strong advocate of self-regulation for years and years and years. Yep. And I think that we created a bit of a monster for ourselves in terms of, well, we see today a lot of challenges with self-regulation, but also now we see regulation all around the world that sometimes conflicts, and yep. sometimes in states. Yep. So it's even like all over in terms of potential opportunities to conflict, and had we actually just created a standard and had it regulated at the outset, lots of regulation could have followed from that. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that I that was a really stark uh, realization for me is when I thought about blockchain, a lot of the challenges with it is that there's this like dark cloud over some of the things just because of history, but regulators don't really understand it and are just trying to become familiar with it. And we have an opportunity to provide education, to create stability in the ecosystem, um, whether that be based on what tokens are, or that be like how you're regulated when you're a network that the network isn't regulated, but endpoints are. There's lots of opportunity there to be able to help create stability so yep. that people aren't operating in this gray area. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So so now as, as a quasi-outsider at the beginning uh, of, your, of your tenure here at Stellar, 
uh, I'm sure you looked at all the other projects that are out there and you know wh why why was Stellar in particular exciting to you and how did you feel that the uh, organization and technology was able to differentiate itself in a way that was was attractive to you yeah so there are two uh, I think areas on that first I, I think about the structure as being really important. I love the fact that we have structured ourselves as a nonprofit, non-shareholder entity. We pay taxes, so it's not we're not a 501c3. But the thing that's important to me about that is that there's no there are no dividends that are paid. There no there is not a group of people that are going to become enriched as a result of this activity. And so we can separate ourselves a bit, which is frankly a lot of what I was able to do at Mozilla. I was able to talk about the ecosystem and policy from the standpoint of I do have a product in market but I'm also not looking just out for my product. I'm looking mm -hmm. out for the market. Yep. And so I feel like our role allows us to be able to create this network, but to advocate not just for what we want to do, but also what's going to benefit the network at large. So, so this idea that you're doing a lot of things in the background for the greater good that the user of Mozilla might not have even understood, known about, certainly not seen, uh, resonates here as well, right? Because there's a lot of things that have to happen in the background for this stuff to become useful to the average person that they might not understand ever happened. Is that's that right. is that a fair statement? That's exactly right. So from my standpoint, and I, and I also don't, we don't need to take credit for all of that work because the good thing is, is that the network's growth, mm -hmm. not just our network, but frankly blockchain generally, especially if it's actually focused on the, the good of the cross-border transactions and allowing the unbanked to have more access to the even the current financial system. Uh, those are things that it's good for everyone yep. to be able to get there. Yep. And so the work that we can help to do uh, by laying that foundation from a regulatory standpoint, not just domestically in the U.S., but also extraterritorially, I think is a really important space. Yeah. Now you mentioned you mentioned um, the structure as a nonprofit as being interesting. Um, so so what else about you know the the Stellar model was was interesting to you in, in making the leap from from Mozilla to Stellar? Yeah, I think that the the second area for me is the technology. I, I spent a lot of time. Again, having understood blockchain generally and uh, you know, having spent some time while I was at Mozilla looking at this, uh, I understood the different types of consensus and like the, the proof of work, proof of stake, and then obviously the um, Byzantine Federated Agreements. And so one of the things I did is I spent a lot of time understanding the network and mm -hmm. what, this, what Stellar had to offer. And for me, the idea that you could actually um, have a network that... Uh, prefers safety over liveness is a really important part of what we don't have in all networks. And I think that what, the, what I mean by that is that, you know, if the protocol, if there gets to a place where there can't reach consensus, the, it's not going to allow it to fork. And so we won't have two competing chains that will run with potentially duplicative transactions. Mm -hmm. um, it'll stall. Yep. And some people might not like that, but from my standpoint, it creates, it allows us to be able to describe to frankly like an audience that would care about it which are regulators that this is how it actually will happen has that ever happened uh it did we had it in may that it okay. actually stalled do, for 60 do, seconds oh six, six, 60 minutes 60 sorry. minutes and do you know why that happened in there were, it was it's actually uh that we did a great i think blog post on this to describe it but it was an output of really pushing decentralization because when you you have to make sure that all of the validators are updated and mm -hmm. everybody's working with the same code base uh, and so there were validators that, that didn't have the same code base and that weren't I working see. on the same. Uh, and so they, we were able to get it back up and running, but it's exactly the kind of thing that we prefer to happen. Right. So so, so let, just, to, just to be clear, we got that back up and running. Who's we oh. in that scenario? And what does it mean to get something back up and running in a decentralized model when it's stalled? Right, so there's a tier one validator channel and mm -hmm. the validators have to all sort of make sure that they're communicating and that's what happens. So when I say we, I don't mean SDF, I mean the network. Yeah. The network was able to, uh, we were able to look at it and say what's happening here and get the validators all aligned. And, and in theory, the network is set up to do that automatically, unstall yes. itself, as, okay. as one would say. Got and it. I think that we, one of the things that I, and so that was a part of it, just the way that they've, uh, that we've developed the Stellar Consensus Protocol. Uh, the preferences in the protocol, the notion that you can have multi-currency yep. on here, and so it's not pre preferring our currency, the, the 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 native currency, which is the Lumen, over anything else. I think those are all things that, from a technology standpoint, yep. I felt like created a really nice opportunity, 
again, getting back to like my roots in terms of openness and transparency yep. and really caring about standard, standards and um, creating those the network opportunity, all the things sort of resonated together. Yeah, so you really dug in to, to understand what was going on behind the scenes and how it all worked and... Uh, and and uh, I don't know how else to put it, but you basically you also inherited a genius when you walked in the door. Exactly. Uh, how's that going? Uh, I think it. Uh, are you talking about Jed? I'm talking just about Jed. Just to be I just sure. I was curious to see who you thought I was yeah, talking about. Yeah, no. But I, uh, yes, I'm talking about Jed. I have to Jed. say, like one of the things for me too. I'll just be very honest about it. Is being a woman in Silicon Valley and in technology. A lot of times um, we we happen to be the women behind the men who are mm. doing the work, and I don't I don't want it. We don't need to get into that. I, I'm issue. okay with that. To, I don't care okay with that. Um, it, this has been a lot of my career, and one of the things I didn't want was to have that. If I was going to take on the CEO role in an organization, I wanted it to be that I was the CEO. Sure. One of the things that Jed and I did, we had dinner together. We spent time together beforehand. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about these issues, about how this would be, so that when I got here, I wouldn't be surprised and he wouldn't be surprised about how um, this was going to be structured. Like, oh, you were, she was serious about that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I find Jed to be just incredibly unique in terms of the folks that I've met in the Valley um, and, and founders in the Valley. Uh, about how he recognizes his strengths yes. and also the things that he doesn't do so I well. hear this over and over again. It's, it's very impressive. It is. Um, and I just have such a great admiration for him, respect for him. I think it goes both ways in terms of him for me. And so things have been phenomenal since I, mm-hmm. um, since I came. I mean, that's one of the things that you worry about when sure. you come. I've worked with many founders over the years and everybody's got their uniqueness and their quirkiness. Um, but I think one of the most important things is that you can feel respected sure. on both sides. Sure. So I respect him for everything that he's done with respect to this and other things, but also for what he continues to do for the organization. Yeah. How long have you been here now? Uh, almost seven months. Seven months. And so uh, I assume you've, you have a, a, an opinion on what the key challenges are for, for Stellar over the next one, five, or ten years. I, I'd love yeah. to hear your, your perspective on that. So I think that, um, I, and I, we just had our first conference, which is our first Stellar-focused conference, and it was really phenomenal in Mexico City where we had a um, almost 400, without actually creating a lot of marketing around this, 400 folks come to the conference to spend time together and with us. And I think the largest challenge is just capitalizing on the momentum. I, mm-hmm. I feel like we're just on this precipice of this all just blowing up in a really positive way, not just for Stellar, but for blockchain. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to capitalize on yeah. that, but we need to do it very strategically and methodically. I talk about our mission, um, and I think that the mission focusing on the unbanked and getting access, creating access to the global financial system is phenomenal. And should not be something that can be when you when you find a mission. It shouldn't be something that can be achieved in five years. You want it to be something sure. that you can ladder up into, and so you take it off in bite-sized chunks. And so the most important things that I think, and, and the challenges, but also opportunities, is for us to really focus on creating the endpoints on the network. Yep. I always I think about the network truly as like a, a web that's sitting in a window, mm-hmm. right? And the, you need to attach the web to all the different uh, all these different places on the window to make it stick. Mm-hmm. Those are our anchors, and mm-hmm. so we need to bring anchors to the network that are, can, and we have many, but bring anchors to the network in all the regions that we'd like to be able to provide, uh, have the have application layers provide services, and so it's a really key focus of ours, and we really need to dig in on that. Why do you think crypto is, or and, and Stellar specifically, is uniquely suited to address this democratization of access that is in the mission that you described for Stellar? Yeah, I think about that a lot because you see a lot of other phenomenal businesses take on the task of doing yeah. it. And I think that uh, it doesn't mean that blockchain is the only way to do it, but I just find the speed of wit- at which um, Stellar and blockchain generally can solve this problem. I mean, literally doing transactions in five seconds yeah. and making it simple for the end user. Uh, you can actually, you know, on Stellar, you can issue a token that you want to be a closed loop, meaning that. You know, if, uh, if an organization in Tanzania decided that if they own various different entities and they want to issue tokens for their consumers or for the folks that work for them and make it simple so they can get it, it can be done so quickly. It's just simple. It's a few lines of code. I just think that this technology allows for 
standardization. It allows for that that kind of openness, and it feeds into the existing financial system. Sure, it doesn't try to displace it. Sure. Now, I've I've always likened this a little bit to TCP/IP, right? So the average person listening to this doesn't understand what TCP/IP is, but it is basically democratized access to information. So how do we go from uh, and, and, and this is a hard question, so I'm sorry for setting you up a little bit, but how do we go from TCP IP taking 25 years or 30 years since the advent of the web to, to basically being this technology that in the background is democratized access to information via the web to crypto doing the same thing for financial services so that people don't have to understand all the mumbo jumbo, they can just use it? Well, it has to be, it's, I don't think it's actually that hard if you're focused on, so the network layer is there. It's already set up. We need to get the endpoints on there. And we have many already, but we're still we're focused on that. I really believe that this just gets down to the basic tenet of focusing on the user mm-hmm. and what value and what needs does the user have. Yep. And so if you focus on application layers to solve user problems instead of to be like, you know, like people talk about sometimes is that killer app. Well, it's not a killer app unless it's actually solving a user need and a user problem and doing it in a very simple way. Blockchain actually allows for simplicity. But it's funny when you look at wallets sometimes that are like not focused on consumers who aren't in the blockchain space um, already, then they do seem a bit more complicated. Sure. So you just have to get back to that simple tenet of creating applications that are really focused on the user and whatever your target user is. And, and does your focus need to be on the developer of those applications or does it need to be on the applications themselves or all of the above or more than that? Yeah, so for SDF, we um, are very focused on the, the network layer. That's clearly our bread and butter and our yeah. strength. And when you say network layer, we're talking about like the, the the tier one validators, the protocols, all of it. Yeah, supporting all of that. I look at us, and so the way that I articulate this, because it's hard, I think, when people think about a network, we are, we shepherd the code base, Mm -hmm. but we're responsive to all of those folks who are already validators or developers on the network. So we respond and we provide, I think it was really awesome, um, and this is one of the things that I think demonstrates the decentralization of a network, is that there, we just, um, uh, in terms of inflation, the infl- inflation was disabled on the network. Inflation had been something that was in the network since its inception, and it was recently disabled. I think it was October 28th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that it was disabled was we had listened to like all the threads and developer um, the developer communications on this for years and finally said, okay, and we also had someone who submitted actually a proposal for how to do it. We provided that code base out to the validators and said, what do you guys think? There's a vote on October 28th, which is just part of the process, and you vote on whether or not you're going to accept the new code. So from what I talk about how we're working, and they voted to accept it, and so the the, the inflation was disabled. That's how you work in a decentralized framework, and our job is to watch the network collect the feedback and provide this out there. So that's the first thing. That's our bread and butter. We're really good at that. We can actually work to create um, better uh, working with the network to create better opportunity. I think the second layer that we've taken on in terms of um, at least for the, ne- the next several years is really focusing on the application layer by building mm-hmm. a wallet. Yep. And so we announced that also in at Meridian in Mexico City. Uh, and we're it's not something that we are focused on for generating revenue for us, although I do think it has to generate revenue because then it shows the value for others, how they can do it to generate revenue. So it's a very important model that I think you have to put in play, thinking about how products work. And so we are focused on the application layer and working, you know, we understand the code base, we understand um, the platform and how to work within it. And so we're developing that. So we are in that case focused on the end consumer. The rest of the time, we're mostly focused on developers, regulators, folks who are not yet developers on yep. Stellar, who we want them to be. Yep. So lots of different audiences, and I think we need to to get this done right. We need to pay attention to all of them. Yeah. How do the the regulators look at SDF itself? Are you a regulated entity, uh, or what is your relationship then? When regulators is a very broad yep. term, right? Yeah. So so how does that work for you? Yeah. So we've spent time with. Um, regulatory bodies, folks that do regulate like FinCEN and the Fed and folks that actually do provide regulation of various different pieces um, and also, you know, different areas in the DOJ. Um, Those are traditional regulators. But we also have spent time with the policymakers, which are the um, domestically and extraterritorially, like focusing on um, 
Congress people and senators to talk to them, them and their staffs about it. Um, we are not a regulated entity because we are, and I don't think the network layer should ever be regulated. Mm -hmm. If you regulate the network layer, it's like regulating the internet, and you really yep. should be creating that standard that everybody can cooperate with and connect to. Uh, but I think it's important that regulators and policymakers understand that you know countries know how to regulate currency. They've been doing it for years. Yep. And the, the good news is that actually all the entities that touch fiat on and off are already regulated by whatever wherever they sit and whatever bodies they have to engage with. And so even having that kind of fundamental knowledge being transferred to uh, folks that are focused on blockchain and, and get a little bit concerned about um, the use cases and how it's gonna complicate their lives, I think their lives are actually not any more complicated because they know how to regulate currency. This is an endpoint that they already have regulation for, all these different folks who touch fiat on and off. So then the next thing is to get them comfortable with the idea that, you know, a lot of times what you'll hear is, well, what about that consumer? That consumer who gets, like, either there's a um, money laundering piece that they get mm -hmm, somehow looped sure. into or they lose their lumens. And the good news is that in blockchain, whereas not with when you hand money over, uh, you know, paper currency over to someone, you don't have a record of it unless you write that up and like take a picture or do whatever. Blockchain has a record. It's yep. open. It's transparent. So even having those kinds of conversation really changes the dynamic. Yep. But at the outset, we're, we're not regulated. Um, and we also, our wallet is a non-custodial wallet. And so we're not from that standpoint from the application. Area. Very interesting. So, so that leads to a question, right? There are a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of blockchain crypto protocols out there. Um, yeah. Jed and the team have been at this for a while. What, in your opinion, separates Stellar from the other kind of crypto and smart contract protocols that are out there? And um, and do you see that changing over time or do you think that's uh, defensible and does it need to be defensible, whatever that is? I So this is maybe where I differ with lots of folks out there. I believe competition allows for innovation and creativity. And huh. I feel like uh, we constantly need that in sure. our world and, and we need it. Like I felt the same way at Mozilla. Like we need to have like really um, interesting competitors out there so that we can focus on. So what makes Stellar different, I think, is our corporate structure. I also think that the cost, the scalability, um, and the speed at which Stellar allows transactions to flow through it is is something that is unique. Okay. The consensus protocol itself, I think, is very, um, it's different, and it's very interesting from the developer standpoint. What, why is it interesting? Why is the consensus protocol interesting from the developer's standpoint? That's I an think interesting that statement. A lot of developers will come in and they'll try to understand, like, what is, like, why do we have this? And if you really, if developers really care about the decentralization because that creates trust. Yep. The consensus protocol allows for decentralization in a way that allows the developer to have choice. So, for example, the um, when you become a validator, you get to choose who you trust in the network. We don't give you a list and say you must trust these people. That's not our role at SDF. You get to go through the TOML files and decide, I'm going to trust this entity or that entity. Uh, and you do it based on how they are viewed in the validator community. And I feel like, so developers who are and we like it when folks want to be tier one developer, de validators on the network um, who care about this and they want to promote the decentralization, these are things that they look at and I think find um, different. And What's their incentive, by the way? Well, I mean, this is the, the interesting thing. They're incented because if you see the being a validator creates a very strong and robust network. And if you care about decentralization, which, by the way, not every company probably, like one of the things I, um, I used to hate when I was at Mozilla is everybody would say, it's the web and everybody needs to care about the web. And so when we built with HTML5, everybody would be like, well, they have to care because it's HTML5 and it's the web. And I was like, consumers don't care about HTML5. Like they want what's good for them. And so with a validator, when you're, when you, the incentive to be part of the validator network uh, is that you are actually creating robustness in mm -hmm. the, in the, um, in the network itself. And you actually have a vote on how the network is going to continue. So that's the incentive. But does every company who builds on Stellar need to care about those things? I'd like them to. But at the same time, it's the same with HTML5. Right. Like they might not care so much about decentralization and how that works. We care. And we think that that actually creates that trust yep. that makes sure that there's not one centralized body, including ourselves, that have control over this network. Is there, um, do you ever think about like, okay, it, it, Somebody, I was talking to somebody about our uh, this pending conversation last night, and, and 
and we were talking about what decentralization means. To me, the ultimate litmus test is, is there a viable off switch? Meaning, if somebody put a gun in your head and said, shut it off, could you do that? Right? Yeah. Could you actually shut off Stellar today in some definable time frame if Joe Regulator walked into the office and said, okay, Danelle, I'm calling BS, shut it off? Yeah, so we could pull our validators from the network and the network would still run. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing we, we meaning the SDF, SDF's owned validators. SDF's three validators we could pull from the network right. and it would still continue. Right. So that means that coming to you to say shut it off is no different than in theory coming to me to say shut off Stellar. And That's I have right. nothing to do in theory with owning the network because it's not ownable. And, and we think that it's incredibly important. Uh, so we could send a message to the tier one validators and tell them all to shut it off. Sure, but, but why, why would they, they do that? Right, us? right. It would be, no again, no different than if I sent them exactly. the same message, right? Um, I think that uh, one of the things that's really important about to create that uh, notion of robustness is to make sure that, okay, so SDF's validators can now be pulled and they'd, the network would still run. How many other tier one validators can be pulled to make sure the network still runs? And so that is the metric that we continually focus on to make sure that, and that's why it's important to have validators in the network so that you can, you know, we can eventually get to the fact that what if 50% were pulled with the network still running? Mm-hmm. Like these yep. are questions that we ask ourselves all the time. Yep, yep. So, so segue that into the mission and what has to happen next. So what are the, the key initiatives for Stellar in the coming months and, and along the path of becoming that kind of you know, democratized access to financial services platform? Yeah, I think that uh, we need to continue. What we did is we readjusted ourselves in terms of the amount of lumens that exist in the world and certainly the amount that Stellar, the SDF held. Um, Why did you do that? We did that because um, we actually did a bottoms-up analysis of what we needed. I I will tell you that for me, when I first got here, we had, I think it was 86 um, billion, 68 billion lumens that were sitting on the giveaway side that we needed to give away. Um, I did some analysis just by looking at organizations that give money away as that's their job and that's their goal. And I know that these are lumens and not cold hard cash, but they operate in some some of the same way. And so I did analysis about what their OPEX looked like and about how much time they spent focused on that. And I really looked at like how, what we were trying to do here, which is focus on the technology piece as well as you know putting the grease into the network, which was what those world giveaways were all about. Um, we did a bottoms up analysis to look at like what do we need and how can we actually get the lumens into the market in a faster uh, way when Stellar uh, was originally created. The network, uh, the, the intention was that within the first five years, all the lumens would be given away. And while we did some really great airdrops and we provided lots of use for, um, I think, some end users who did wonderful things with them, airdrops are not simple. And especially hmm. in in today's world where when you do an airdrop and then, you know, you do an airdrop and people then say, well, there's a bunch of dead accounts that exist at that organization that's doing that airdrop. Let me try to get in there and reopen those dead accounts. And it creates stress for the entity right. that's doing the airdrop too right. because of the technical... Um, the, so you end know, up with abandoned lumens, which don't serve anyone's You end up with purpose. abandoned lumens and then you also end up with a lot of technical challenges when they're trying to hack into these mm. old accounts and yep. then you know yep. it just creates that. So. Uh, we, th- we still think that um, giving users, real users, like humans, uh, lumens is a really important thing, but we looked at how money we need. And yep. so that's how we, um, and how many need to exist in the world. And so we, we burned 55 billion. We now have 50 billion that exist in the world. 20 are already in the public hands and 29 sit in ours. We broke those out. And so when, when we broke them out to different accounts, and when we did that, we did it based on what is important. So if you think about what we need to do, uh, SDF, what SDF needs to do itself, we need to, we're need to. we going to launch the wallet. That's a big focus of ours. Uh, it's focused on Latin America. It's open source code so that others can take the code and build the same thing, and we would support that. Um, and I think that's important because it'll demonstrate that the use case, this is a wallet that's focused on savings, dollar savings, um, and it's a use case that's important for some folks that have volatile um currency and also for folks that don't have access to a bank so Mm -hmm. that's an important piece that we need to do we need to continue to focus on the currency endpoints and making sure that there are on-ramp and off-ramps for businesses application layers anybody who wants to be able to transact on stellar we also need to make sure that there's liquidity in the market which will help with the currency endpoints piece too Um, and i think honestly like if we were and, and to and to focus some effort 
on marketing for our, the what we call partners, which are not really partners, but folks that build on our network to help them to market their products. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those are the things that we're focused on doing. I talk about it as be very vocal about what Stellar is yep. and what Stellar can offer. What are the what are the reasons why someone should build on Stellar and what it can offer to them. That's one of the things we need to do so that folks can see, oh yeah, if I built on this, then I could actually change not just my business, but change the lives of users. Yeah. If, if all of a sudden um, there was a killer app out there, your wallet or other services, and, they, and, and a, a million people were using Stellar really actively, like every day, would it work? Yeah, I mean, I, we're, we believe that the scale exists for that. And uh, you know, we're constantly pushing ourselves. One of our uh, strategic pillars is to focus on the robustness of the network, and robustness includes security as well as scalability. Yep. But we think it would. Now, what you need to do is then say, okay, well, what about 10 million users? What about a billion users? Right. And you need to like plan that out, and that's one of the things that we are also focused on. You also need to think about use cases and what I used to call emerging technologies, which frankly maybe blockchain used to be one. Um, and so what do you need to do on the network to, like, do you need to think about privacy and in a different way? Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, we have payment channels that you can use um, to some extent for this, but financial institutions might not want to show all of their cards to the world by like showing what channels and how much they're they're putting um you know they're transacting in a day so. do you think that will work that the payment channel model on 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 stellar well we're working on it now to see if it will there's also we have another um why might it not work i i think it will i think okay. that payment channels will work yeah. i don't know that it solves all of the problems that that um that businesses might want to. like what? what what problem might it not solve I think that it will obfuscate. Like, if you think about what banks might want to, if banks were on the network, what they might want to obfuscate is how much money is sure. being transacted through. So a little less about scalability and a little bit more about owning their kind of piece of the of the network. Exactly. Like they just don't want their competitor to yeah. see like how much sure. they're they're transacting in. And I think payment channels could work for obfuscation of sure. like how much. Okay. Um, but I also think that there could be areas of privacy, like privacy even on the consumer level, that aren't achieved in the same way. And so there might be, you know, we have another project that we're focused on. What does that look like in terms of a real, like a privacy-focused open network and yep. how to do that? Yep. Um, I've been wondering about once the regulators do understand kind of these second tier or second layer technologies, do they start to view them as money service businesses? Because clearly there is an off switch on layer two, right? Um, And I'm not sure that anybody knows the answer to that yet, at least not based on what I've seen. It's just so early. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, it's really interesting if you focus on regulators in the U.S. and also policymakers. Um, There's a group that focus on just the consumer protection side and are very worried about whether or not consumers can be protected in this model, like with your keys and all of those things. Well, all that stuff actually existed in other models before. You know, the web was part of that too. Like you lose your password, how do you get it back? Like these are things that there are fixes for. Yeah. Uh, and so we can get past that. I think that um, the potential for regulators to want to have more control exists every day on the web and the content oh, sure. side. From an encryption standpoint, just think about that debate. A debate that I find like it's just so important. Uh, I think for the world to be talking about encryption and why we don't want governments to have an ability yep. to get in the middle and to be able to yep. um, have an open line to those communications. I think we need to be prepared to have those discussions. I think earlier versus later. That's another thing I think we did wrong on the content side. Is encryption um, wasn't something that we talked about why that was so important all the time. Yep. It was just table stakes for a lot of communications. And I think so. Same here. We just need to have those conversations. So, what gets you angry when, when you think about our world, cryptocurrency world? What happens at Stellar? You know, is there something that just just boils your blood that if you could snap your fingers, it would just change immediately? I do, I, and nothing gets me angry. I, I just feel like I'm super opportunistic about what the future has for this. I don't get angry about things. I do get frustrated because. Uh, I think just the history and the notion of blockchain being one of those things that's like throwing a middle finger up to everybody who's out there in the world trying to like regulate and do good for everyone else um, is sort of like a perspective that's been um, received by many and I and that frustrates me. I have conversations. I was sitting with my chief of police in my hometown. We played baseball together on a softball team this summer and he was like, oh, cryptocurrency. Like that's just really bad for money laundering. And I was like, really? Because actually... 
you actually now have a transaction that you can see, like, mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. can actually get to either of the endpoints to get to the sure. humans on the other side. My impression is the FBI loves Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But do you see, like, that was the perspective, right. even though it doesn't have any... So those things frustrate me, but I understand it's, um, it's our fault. Like, one of the things I always believe is that when you're dealing with these issues, um, when the public has a different perception, it's because we haven't done our job of explaining what it, what's the real value. Yeah. And that actually, for new technology, is incumbent upon the folks who are developing the new technology. Sure, but I, I would say that's also, back to our earlier analogies, that was the internet in 94, 95 as well, right? People thought the internet was porn and gambling, yeah. uh, was never going to be useful, certainly not for accessing you know, educational information and watching movies and all those things, given, especially given that we were on dial-up modems. And obviously, that's wrong. And that's been proven wrong. And, and the question is, how will that be proven wrong here? And what will that path look like to proving the same thing wrong or that that simply was a matter of ignorance at the time? Yeah. And I think, but again, I don't think that we did our part then. I think that, you know, I'll, I'll just be honest and say that I think that there were, uh, you know, I started working in the in, on the content side of the web 25 years ago. And I think we had a little bit more arrogance about ourselves that like, you actually can't understand this. We understand it better. We understand things that you're never going to get. Oh, sure. I mean, at Netscape, we were so arrogant. It was, right. un- it was unbelievable it's just, how arrogant we were. It's the history of it. Yeah. And we thought, oh, we're not going to let you tell us what to do on privacy because you actually don't understand what cookies are. Right. I mean, these are things that if we think about our job today and if we really want this technology to be something that's accepted... It's our job yep. to be able to articulate these things. I always, when I was working on like net neutrality, when I was working on encryption, one of the things I would always do is go home to my kids and say, let's have a conversation. Tell me, like, let's talk about this so that I could explain it to them in a way that they understood, which like sometimes we did it in like, you know, pictures or graphics so that then I could come and I could say, okay, this is how we need to talk to people about yep. it. And it's actually something that's super useful for us to do. We aren't the smart ones here. We just happen to be deep in something. There are a lot of smart people out there. And my view is we can benefit from their questions, their thoughts, and we can actually make this better. Sure. And and honestly, I history leaves clues. And, and, and having done this for 30 years, the one thing I've seen time after time is that the technologists who are passionate about the technology often lack the, just the general interest in explaining themselves, in evangelizing the technology, because a lot of them are simply here uh, for technology's sake, which we need that to a certain degree, but that doesn't solve the problem that we're talking about. It just exactly. helps make better technology. And it actually it, creates more of the problem it that does we're talking about. Problem. That's Even right. if it's not arrogance, then it, it's just like, oh, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard for me to explain this to you. It's so funny, if you think about the consensus protocol and and I would, and I would, I, there are many diagrams that you can look at it. And I've actually gone through that and talked to my kids like about how, why it's important that we have it and why it work and how it works. And I do think that, you know, we need to have more of those conversations. I always say, if you can't explain something in two minutes, in simple words that are going to make sense to everyone, not using all of our stupid acronyms that we somehow create, it's not, it's not worthy of a conversation. Like we need to make it simple. Sure. But in, in the context of like a credit card, which is, I think is an analogous transaction, the most the average person is either wants, is capable or interested in understanding is, is that a bank gives me a card. They wouldn't use the phrase issue. They would say, I got a card from my bank. Mm-hmm. And they would say, the merchant accepts my card. That's it. Mm-hmm. The idea of an issuer, an acquirer, a merchant processor, uh, and, and all the other layers in between are just you know completely uninteresting to the average consumer unless they happen to work in the payment space. Or until it needs to become interesting to them. And okay. that's like, if you think about privacy, we said that about privacy, we can fix this for everybody and nobody needs to care about it. We got this. And then clearly we didn't. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking we holistically as, the, as that whole, the whole network that was working on it at that time. And so it becomes important to people at some point. And I always talk about privacy as my perfect example is like, it only is important when it actually something happens to you that you sure, you've been hacked. Fix it. Everybody in crypto yeah. cares about non-custodial wallets exactly. after they've been hacked, which is why Abra has more or less tried, <laughs> has stopped even trying to explain that. We put content out there. We, we pointed people to it. But until you've been hacked, it just falls on deaf ears. But see, this is the important thing. You put content out there. Yes. 
And sometimes we stop putting content out there. That's true. And so we need to continue to put content out there. And also the simplicity of like when you're talking about blockchain, people go, oh, like it's just like so complicated. Right. Actually, no, let me show you a picture of the ledger. Yeah. And if you show them the ledger, they're like, oh, I get it. Like, and this is the block and then it yeah. moves into a chain. And like, actually, it's not that complicated. Yeah. yeah, there's encryption and there's cryptography and stuff that goes on. But those aren't. So my point is, if we ever stop putting content out there, that's when the problem actually, cre we create a larger problem for ourselves. Because you point your consumers to it, they might not care until they do. Right. And that's the thing that we need to And we never know what the impetus might be exactly. for, I mean, I obviously getting hacked is one impetus, but as we evolve, I hope there are others and I just have no idea what they what they might be. So, so what do you think is, um, you know, put your, turn this microphone here into a crystal ball, uh, 2020, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to have happen by the time we're sitting here and having this conversation in November of 2020? So I think um, I think we might be hard pressed to have regulation, although if we do, it'll be in the latter half of the year, uh, just in terms of tokens and to create some stability in that space. I think that's a potential, but it won't happen until the latter half of the year. I just keep hearing more and more and talking more and more to central banks and I do feel like there's the potential that central banks are going to issue like I see like we're hearing about in China sure. their own coin their own tokens. Do you do you think that China is literally developing this from scratch? I don't know that they've actually said publicly how they're doing that. Have they forked Stellar or some other code base? Do, do you have any insights as any I don't, rumors? Although I will tell you that I think that the Chinese are just phenomenal in terms of how they are able to develop technology and much of it is by like looking at what's out there and either replicating it or utilizing it so mm -hmm. i would be surprised if there's not a fork somewhere yeah. have um, you seen other governments or have other governments approached you about how to create national currencies using technology like stellar so we've talked to many central banks uh, all around the world some like in africa we actually just had someone in meridian at meridian in mexico city from this the from canada okay and the central bank there and so they've obviously looked at this a lot they've spent a lot of time on it clearly he wouldn't say whether they're going to issue something but i believe that that is sort of the next thing that we're going to see. So, so somebody from the, the Fed uh, made some comments. I was reading this in the MIT Journal um, a couple of days ago that uh, they were skeptical of the value of a, uh, a dollar token from an American perspective. Like they could see how it would add value globally, but they were a little skeptical from an American perspective. If that person was sitting here, what would you say to them? I would say that I, uh, our, their currency is not just in America today. Sure. And uh, this allows them. I think that there's also really nice use cases in America for a USD back token. What like would be the killer use cases for a USD back token? Well, I mean, if you. I think, mean, we obviously have that with Tether and, right. and others today. Right. Well, I mean, we think about so we on the coasts and, and everywhere, like and in here in Silicon Valley, we think about everyone has a bank account, mm -hmm. everyone has access to that. Well, that's just not true. So this actually gives a very simplified opportunity for someone who they can access it and they don't have to go to a financial institution. If the token exists, they can actually put get it in our wallet and they can have it, you know, without having to do those things that they have to go in and show their IDs to all of these different banking sure. authorities. I think it actually does have opportunity here that could be super useful. And also for all of the folks here who want to send U.S. dollars uh, or US, a, a token that has U.S. backing to their families elsewhere, this gives them a huge opportunity to do it. So I think it has impact on citizens that exist here. I think it has, there, we're already seeing this happen with, with dollars and um, in the paper and in currency that exists today. And so why not have the, the Fed have a bit more understanding of what's happening with their so currency? So... Uh, I could put a little bit of a skeptical hat on and say, hey, well, wait a minute, you know, the Fed technically isn't, even though it's called Fed, isn't really a, a government organization in the traditional sense. It actually sits somewhere in between the banks and the government. And you might say, well, their incentive to have a system that runs outside of, of that world is pretty low because then they lose control or their reason to exist may be even, even mitigated. Um, and a lot of people today simply don't trust the banks. If you remember what we went through with the, mm -hmm. with the, the, I forget what it was called, the people protesting outside the Wall Street banks a few years ago uh, in 2008, 2009, um, that sent a message that people just don't trust the banks. You know, we, we track net promoter scores at Abra, and there are banks with negative, net negative MPS scores. Now, in English, for, for listeners, that means if they add a new customer, by definition on average, that customer is actually detracting from the overall brand value of the bank. That is insane. Yeah. So it seems like on the surface that they would not be incentivized for that to happen because people who don't trust the banks would now have options. Mm 
right? Is that is well, that a fair way to look at it? I mean, I think that that is a way that they could look at it, but I also think it depends on if you're actually trying to enhance the financial system and not, and even those banks would have different opportunities to have different business models. Yep. Um, I'm not saying that this is the right thing uh, to happen, by the way. I actually find it, I don't know, I love the idea that it's multi-currency, multi-asset for anything that anybody wants to put on it and that it creates a competition right, uh, right now. That's the word. I think you, when you said that earlier, that's what resonates with people, right, is, is that we have competition in every aspect of society except money. I know. Why is that? Why why is there a central bank? Why can't there be either multiple central banks competing for my mind share uh, or decentralized, you know, versions of that that are competing for my mind share? And, and I think it's it's definitely happening clearly with the with kind of nutty anarchists yeah. out there who who basically see bitcoin above all else but i think that the average person post 2007 sees that that you know the federal reserve is, doesn't exist to stabilize the value of your money they exist to stabilize the economy in theory yeah. right and, the and they'll do that at the expense of your money yeah. if all else uh, you know fails and and so that has given people pause to say hey well wait a minute Right. Maybe there's a better way and they don't know everything about my perspective and their focus is on their perspective, which is basically the banks come first and maybe the people come second. And the best way to deal with that is competition. That's right. And I think that, that, that one of the things that I reflect on when I think about central banks issuing those tokens is does that still allow room for stable coins out there? And you know, it's one of the questions that I think we need to figure out. And I think that, because I, as I said, I'm not sure that central banks doing so. Like in the U.S., it might not be necessary. There are other countries where a central bank issuing a token could actually ease of use for the, the transactions within that country could become so much simpler and straightforward. And that you then people who don't have access to going to these financial institutions could. Yeah totally different world yep. in you know Zimbabwe and Tanzania and all these so there's there are places where it actually means something I don't know we have to think about like how all this impacts things not that I think that we're going to have a huge amount of impact on whether central banks want to do this um, I think China stepping into this creates challenges for all of these different countries to have to react to that um, but I do think that there's going to be movement there. Yeah. And I think that we'll see movement in 2020. And whether it'll be the right movement is a question. One of right. the things that I mentioned to the Canadian, uh, the gentleman who was from Canada was, or the Canadian Central Bank was, well, what about if you just issued a token and didn't allow it outside your borders? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, you can't do that right now with your current currency because you don't have control over who's somebody, whether they drive across the border with your, mm-hmm. your Canadian dollars. But what about if you did that? I think that's probably not the right thing, but I'm just like, there are different controls that you can put when it's an, a digital token on a blockchain. Interesting. And so I think that you need to think about all of these different pieces. I'm sure the Chinese government has thought about that a lot. I'm confident. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I just think that there's, this is a space to watch. And I still think uh, that with this, there are a lot of assets that are issued on Stellar, for example, or that could be issued on other blockchains that are still highly valuable, even yeah. with the issuance of yeah. a central bank token. You talked about your, your kids. What do your kids think about cryptocurrency and Stellar and all of this? I mean, I talk to my kids all the time yeah. about this. I'm curious as to how yours think about this. So my kids were, uh, they became deeply um, deep fans. I have I have three boys. Um, oh, so my, do I. My partner has two boys. Oh. So we have five boys. Oh my God, you got a Brady we, Bunch. Yeah, that we talk about. <laughs> Um, these issues wow. a lot. And so when I was at Mozilla, we had spent so much time, as you know, just given the Netscape piece, like we are like deeply committed to openness and net neutrality was like a lot of discussion that we would have to try to like make it, bring it down to that level and encryption. And for and, them, it was a lot of blah, 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 wah, You know, wah, it's wah, funny, wah, wah, like wah. a lot of it was that, but then um, my son did, uh, my middle son did an iSearch project with the, they have to do in their, I think it's their sophomore year. And he did it on net neutrality. And he's like, this is a really important issue, mom. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, wow, that's that matters. super cool. So, when you, so we spent, so in the crypto space, I, I have to be honest and tell you, like the, um, we spent time talking about what I was going to do before I came here. And they were kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Like this is all kind of new and different. But then my son who, uh, my, my oldest son who uses Kiva, um, and he gives loans on Kiva. He puts his um, some of his money there. He was like, "Mom, what about if like something like Kiva was done on the blockchain? Wouldn't that be just so much easier?" So like, I think it just comes yep. in waves, right? Yep. Like they just figure things out as it relates to that. Sure, because the, the Kiva model was very important to him, and, and exactly. clearly he sees that if this went global faster, it would be exactly. more interesting and more helpful. I, I love that. 
um, yeah, I mean, we've had the conversations. I, my, my oldest is 18, and he, he actually, uh, when he was 16, was already getting money back from friends in Bitcoin uh, who didn't have bank accounts. I'm not really sure how they got the Bitcoin in the first place, but, but um, uh, either from parents or whatever, but they definitely were, uh, when they owed each other money because they either bought something, one person who had a credit card would buy something in a gaming environment and they would pay each other back in Bitcoin. So awesome. um, and so that was, you know, uh, that was simply a need that they had. Uh, which would then cause some questions about, you know, why is it, why am I able to do this but not deal with the banks? And, you know, so that led to some, some conversations. But to your point, it's really about, you know, how is it, what makes it personal? That's right. And that's, and I, that's why I always, I mean, I feel like I've learned more from having kids um, about my life and how I want to do, what I want to do in my work. But I do think that it really has taught me that it only becomes important when it becomes important, but the information needs to be out there mm. and available. Right. When my son wanted to get onto Snapchat, I was like, you need to go read every bad thing that's ever happened with someone on Snapchat. <laughs> well, so that could take a long time. <laughs> so that you can figure out like whether what that's, you need to do. That's a good it. strategy because it could probably take him years <laughs> to read all that. And, and uh, by the time he reads it, then, you know, Maybe not it's not It'll your problem anymore. No more, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so so the first question I'm going to ask you a year from now when, when we do this again is going to be, where are we vis-a-vis that competition? And are we seeing some some light at the at the end of the tunnel? Has the tunnel gotten shorter or has the tunnel gotten longer? Um, but I think um, this has been an interesting year in terms of waking people up. And I think Libra w- was part of that. Um, and now we'll see what, if people fall back asleep or... You know, if if we really start to see some competition in in the, in the system, both from a banking and and monetary system, so Danelle, thank you so much for joining us on behalf of our of our awesome audience, and uh, we look forward to uh, supporting Stellar within uh, the Abra community, and, and hopefully having you back uh, in 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 the near future to talk about what's uh, what's happening. Great, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. All right, thanks everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thanks again for listening to the Money 3.0 show. We hope you liked this episode as much as we did. If so, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to download the Abra app wherever you get your apps.